0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: The 43rd edition of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show uh, hits the airwaves. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mohn. In New York City, Is Sam Dykstra. Hello,
2: Sam. Hello, Tyler. Making
1: the legal system work.
2: Yeah, but I think you have the bigger story this week. Ah, maybe. Now... Proud dog owner. I'm Tell really about it. I'm a
1: proud dog owner these days. Uh, for anybody who's followed me on Twitter, I've just stopped talking about anything that really affects the world in any way, and I just post pictures of my dog now, so that's cool. Um, yeah, no, got a, got a little two-year-old Australian cattle dog that I adopted from a rescue uh, as of Sunday. Um, The Broncos won the AFC championship and then I got a dog like an hour later. It was a good Sunday to be a kid from Denver. Um, So I am I'm quite pumped. Her name is Laika. I named her after the first dog in space.
2: Um, Great name, by the way. Thank you, pal. I
1: appreciate that. I I've been so self-conscious about the name because my mom, when I picked out the name, my mom was like, it's cute. I just don't get the connection. Like, there's a connection mom i just think like, it's a cool name the dog went into space uh by the way the real like a uh, not a happy ending to that story so don't look it up but a really cool no. name no. um but yeah so i'm uh i'm pumped i'm pumped we have a lot of fun she um you know sits next to me when i write stuff And uh, she's always got to be touching me, which is cool. So today she was laying on her side away from me, but she put one paw on my knee as I was writing up this Rocky's Rays trade. So it's – I'm pretty stupidly in love
2: with this dog. Let's
1: let's just (laughs) just, just put it that way.
2: And it sounds like the feeling is mutual. Yeah, I
1: think so, which is really cool. Um, Yeah, so that's my big news. And uh, you are still – I don't want to say stuck – Uh, You're still on jury duty. This is your second and final week of making the the American judicial system work. Uh, Apparently, last week, I put in the description that we were going to have like an in-depth breakdown of you on jury duty. And somebody told Kelsey Hannigan, who was also on our episode last week. Well, I said they were going to talk to Sam a lot about jury duty. So I just skipped the beginning. (laughs) <laughs> but we didn't, we didn't go that in-depth to it, so we we'll leave it until it, the so end. didn't do
2: it, so if you're listening now, this is this begins and concludes our coverage of Sam. <laughs> of uh, Sam
1: on grand jury duty.
2: Grand jury duty, yeah. It's so, so weird, though, because normally we
1: talk, we text during the week and all that kind of stuff, and it's just been radio silence because Sam is at the Fortress of Justice, you know, laying the law down.
2: Yeah, something That's like weird. that. Something like it that. makes me sound a lot more like Superman than I ever <laughs> have in my life. So I appreciate that much, but uh, it's, it's not as cool as that sounds.
1: Well, it is a big week in the prospect world. MLB.com MLB pipeline set to unveil the top 100 prospects in all of baseball coming up here this weekend. Tomorrow we're recording on Thursday. So by the time you're listening to this on Friday, uh, Friday evening on MLB Network, top 50 prospects will be released to the public nine o'clock Eastern time. We've talked a lot about who we think the top prospect in baseball is going to be coming into 2016. Really seems to be a two-horse race. Uh, is it Byron Buxton? Is it Corey Seager? There have this week been uh, a really good series of stories on MLB.com of who the potential top prospects in baseball could be and they've kind of run down the case for byron buxton jp crawford lucas giolito Corey seager today as you're listening to this if you're listening on friday julio, julio urias is up he's the the latest one to to come out on the last one but you will find out who the top prospect is sam and i a couple of weeks ago we already gave you our thoughts on that um so sam what is in your mind the biggest storyline or some of the biggest storylines for the top 100 uh coming into the release for
2: 2016 yeah, and just to give people kind of a refresher on that debate we had a couple of weeks ago, You you're, feel free to go back and download the podcast again. again Absolutely, which
1: it, you can do now, by the way, at MILB.com slash podcast. That goes directly to the show before the show landing page now.
2: Yeah, so look at that direct plug. Uh, way that That's works. It's good but synergy. Yeah, so w- the way we uh, kind of did this a couple weeks ago, I, I took the side of Seager, um, Corey Seager, you know, with the Dodgers. He's already had really good major league success. Um, and I, I value that. You know, especially with the the struggles Buxton had, kind of in Minnesota, it still has all those tools that we all like to talk about. It has probably a higher ceiling than Seager, but um, the, way, the way Seager has performed at such a, you know, what could be a quality position for the Dodgers at shortstop, uh, that that gets me more excited. Um, we'll see how it comes out tomorrow on Friday, um, how that kind of breaks itself down. But uh, things I'm kind of looking for, just you know, just off the top of my head. You know, some of the where are the 2015 draftees going to land? You know, Brendan Rogers, uh, friend of the podcast, Danby Swanson, Alex Spregman, how are those guys gonna fill in? Andrew Benintendi, uh you know had a very good uh campaign with Arkansas, then got drafted highly by the Red Sox and performed equally well in Greenville and Lowell. Um what is that pro success gonna do for his stock coming into this year? Um how is he gonna rate against some of his other 2015 draftees? Um, how how are the Braves and Phillies systems going to uh, you know reflect all that change that they've undergone in recent months that rebuilding process uh, you know those team lists will come out in the coming weeks but from the top 100 prospect uh, standpoint you know just how many Phillies and how many Braves especially the new guys that those teams have acquired um, where are they going to kind of fill in I think Braves fans will be probably particularly excited to see you know, where some of their guys, new guys fill in. Uh, But just those are some of the things I'm kind of looking at. It's always just fresh faces and, you know, what are the fresh spots, fresh new spots that they're going to be spilling into um what are you kind of looking at Tyler?
1: i really love when we come into this time of the season um with uh, the offseason i should say with uh, the ranking time of year where we see who really did a lot to up their stock in 2015 who uh, fell off a little bit um i mean i think we're gonna see a huge jump obviously from blake snell we talked to blake on the podcast we've talked about blake a ton on the podcast one other guy who really sticks out to me as a huge, huge riser, um, which really won't surprise anybody if you've listened to us or if you followed the Miners in 2015. But Orlando Arcia, I think, is you know going to be one of the guys we look back on. A couple of years from now, we'll look back at where he initially was thought to be a prospect and realize how wrong people were. I mean, the tools were always there, but he really put it together this season and showed he's a, a pretty front-end guy for the prospect world. So I always like that, seeing who did the most – to put themselves back into a conversation or into a conversation for the first time among the top prospects in baseball. And then on the other side of that, The guys who really fell off and I don't think I mean last year the year of the prospect we didn't really see that many hugely disappointing seasons from top prospects Um, so I'll be interested to see if there are many of those guys who fell off. Um, Joey Gallo comes to mind a little bit. Didn't have a bad season uh, but just was used in so many different spots and did not really show off what we expected to see from him. Obviously he got a good amount of big league time but the numbers of the major league level, kind of what you would have expected for his first major league taste, the 717 OPS, a 204 average, uh, struck out a bunch 57 times in 36 games. So he was back in the minors, saw some time in Round Rock, saw some time in Frisco, very good at the AA level, struggled at AAA. I don't think we'll see a huge drop from Joey Gallo, but he's one of those guys, is 2016 finally going to be the time we see him break out? Um, so that always is the is the big conversation to me, is who are the big risers? Who are the guys who have fallen a bit?
2: Yeah, and I'll kind of introduce one topic then along those kind of lines. Uh, two guys who immediately come to mind who could drop out of the top 100 based on 2015, you know, performance. Do you think Mark Appel and separately Tyler Kolick should be top 100 guys now?
1: That is a great question. Um, I don't think that Tyler Kolek should be at this stage in his career, and I don't think that that really says anything about Kolek falling out, um, you know, as a prospect uh, entirely. I mean, I think there's still a lot there to work with, but I don't think for – especially for the hype that he generated coming into the draft with that fastball that could touch, you know, the mid-100s and the the durability and the frame for him, uh, it just has not come together as a prospect. Mark Appel – strikes me as being a guy who I think will be more of a quality major leaguer than what the last couple of seasons have suggested for him. Um, so I don't think that he'll fall out of that list entirely, but they're definitely in the conversation. Colec, for my money, I don't think is in, in, in the uh, the realm of a top 100 level talent anymore at this stage. Uh, but I, I think Mark Appel still belongs there, not toward the, the top half. I mean, what we initially saw when he came into pro ball, but I think he still belongs in that conversation.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of tend to agree with you. The, the one sticking point I would have on Kolek, I mean, yes, we, we saw tons of struggles from him last year at Class A. Um, you know, that's only his first full season. I think there's still time to grow there. I think his ceiling Definitely. is significantly shorter than what we initially thought when he was taken you know, number two overall a couple of years ago. Um, but I think he still has that room to grow. Appel... I don't i you know we've seen it at this point he's played at double a he's played at triple a. It doesn't seem like it's coming together, you know new organization you know fresh start all that kind of stuff we'll see how that kind of shakes out and everybody loves to talk about his stuff. It's just kind of it you know with his delivery being so clean it doesn't play off as well as it could, maybe the Phillies find a way to fix that We'll have to see um but he's right on that line for me uh you know this stuff has certainly been you know at top of the line everybody likes to talk about it like i said but the results just have not been there enough for me i think kolik has enough i think i could still see appell dropping even more even if he is in the top 100 this significantly year significantly yeah yeah and kolik i think could actually bump himself in again if he finds his form this year you know potentially at high a um in the Maryland system but we'll, we'll see how it shakes out when it comes out later, later today for those of you listening on friday
1: I just want to run through real quick. This is kind of is a segue from that segment, but Tyler Kolick was the number two pick overall in the 2014 Major League Draft. These are just some of the names in the top, we'll go 17, prospects of the 2014 draft. Number one overall pick that year was Brady Aiken. The fiasco that followed, the Astros didn't sign him. Aiken ends up falling out of the first round. Obviously, Tommy John surgery, and he ends up, or not falling out of the first round, but falling out of uh, the first overall pick in 2014, not signing. His career now starting to get on track after he was drafted last Last year, Tyler Kolek number two, as of right now has really fallen off the prospect radar. Then back-to-back picks at three and four, already major league impact guys. Carlos Rodon to the White Sox at number three. Kyle Schwarber to the Cubs at number four. Number five, six, seven, some younger guys. uh, Nick Gordon for the Twins, Alex Jackson for the Mariners. Aaron Nola, we know the impact that he's made in the Philly system already. Uh, Then some injury risk or um, already injury have guys at eight and nine. Kyle Freeland and Jeff Hoffman both now in the Rockies organization at eight and nine. Michael Conforto, um, a Mets hero at number 10 max pentecost we've barely seen as a professional baseball player at number 11 uh and we'll jump a little bit further down uh trey turner at number 13 already in his second organization sean newcomb at number 15 already in his second organization and suki at number 16 already in his second organization and then brandon fiddling at number 17 has been traded too like that (laughs) first round is insane and that was two years ago
2: yeah, well it just seems like a lot of people are excited by those guys and want to trade for them and the organizations who had them found them expendable. How weird. Yeah, How it's weird. Pretty-
1: you never, five years ago, it was never like that. It never felt like that with an MLB draft. And nowadays, we are seeing that a lot, that yeah. teams are willing to part with guys or, or whatever we've seen. And it is, uh, I mean, it's a gamble. The MLB draft, that's what makes it so much fun, is you don't really know what you're getting in some of these guys. You can do all the scouting in the world, and that goes for a lot of drafts, I mean, across a lot of sports. But, I mean, that's, what is that, 19 months ago, that draft, and that's how it looks already. That's right. insane to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll... Probably for a long time be known as the Trey Turner draft. Yeah, definitely the the rule now works in terms of you know trading draft picks in their draft years. And how so weird when you can being drafted.
1: when you consider the storylines of that draft. How weird that it'll probably be known as the Trey Turner draft and not the Brady Aiken draft. Yeah, I mean, good point. Yeah. Weird. 2014. Weird. One day we'll do a we'll do a very long form piece on the 2014 draft. So. <laughs> um, strike two for uh, three strikes this week. Episode number 43 of the show before the show. Prospect projections roll on. The American League Central is on deck. Uh, this week already released on, uh, on Monday. Sam, take it away.
2: Yeah, so the crux of this piece that I did this week, um, you know, started focusing on Byron Buxton because, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, he's the top prospect in baseball, you know, arguably the, the game's most exciting prospect in terms of tools and all that. And like I said earlier in the show, you know, got his first taste of big league ball last year, struggled a little bit. Um, but it looks like the Twins are going forward, planning for him to be their starting opening day center fielder. So how how does Steamer 600 think it would pan out for him? Um, you know, given kind of his struggles uh, last year in the majors, it's it's down on him a little bit. It doesn't expect him to be you know Mike Trout coming out of the chute this year. Um, it projects him to be worth 1.7 WAR. Um, that's a that's a good player. It's a good solid average, um, you know, to a slightly above average player. It's not rookie of the year type material necessarily, but Steamer 600 was around that way for Correa and Lindora last year. Um, so Twins fans, if you're worried about that, I, I would just you know say, let's see how it's going to play out. This is just a projection for now. Um, but what's far more interesting for me in that Twin system is that right now as things stand, uh, Steamer projected Jose Barrios to actually be the Twins' best pitcher of the season full stop, not best minor league pitcher, not best triple a pitcher, best major league pitcher this year, based on the way he performed last year, double a new Britain and triple a Rochester. It projects him to have a 3.99 ERA 1.29 whip, uh, be worth 2.8 war. And that's something that I think the twins would love to have. Uh, Barrios really should have been in the majors last year. I think just the way he really, really pitched well, racked up a lot of strikeouts um, between his the top two levels of the minors, uh, so it, I think it's likely that he's a super two candidate, um, and by that I mean somebody who's going to be held out until perhaps June, just so they don't have to worry about starting his clock. Um, but he, he could be a, a, find himself in a situation kind of like Chris Bryant, in that they only hold him out a couple weeks um, just to delay uh, arbitration slightly, or delay excuse me um, his service. Time starting a little bit um but jose if jose barrios is the best pitcher twins pitcher this year i think that speaks to a lot of the the lack of twins starting depth as well as just the excitement behind barrios Uh, some other kind of interesting storylines going through uh the al central here Uh, michael fulmer top tigers prospect uh looking more and more like he's major league ready uh steamer projects him to be worth 1.9 more which is actually more than buxton obviously different positions but in terms of worth to a team uh um, steamer thinks fulmer is a more valuable player than Buxton. by the
1: way he is a prospect Q and A subject this week on com. you can go read that on the site
2: see there you go yeah you get to find out about Fulmer's spots on the trade from the mets to the tigers um you know what he found out what how he found out about it what he thinks about the tigers that, that whole thing uh He's projected for a 4.30 ERA, uh, 7.0 K per nine, 3.0 walks per nine, FIP. Nothing to necessarily make you scream, this is going to be great. But at a certain point, it is a valuable major league option for a Tigers team that looks like it's really going to go for it next year. Um, And with a lot of young talent, uh, specifically coming from the Blue Jays in terms of pitching with Daniel Norris and Matt Boyd. So we'll see if Fulmer can kind of wedge his way in there, make the jump from double A here. straight to the majors at some point this year, uh, for the Royals. Um, one interesting note, Raul Mondesi got to, you know, make his major league debut in the world series last year. I'm sure that has a lot of Royals fans excited. Uh, that was a curious move from our perspective, just because Mondesi being so young, still being a teenager, uh, well, actually he's 20 now, excuse me. Uh, you know, making that jump from Double A to the majors at, at such a specific time—you know, when so much was on the line—and specifically because he didn't have great offensive numbers at Northwest Arkansas. Um, but that might have gotten some Royals fans excited to think that the organization thinks its top prospect is ready for a jump to the majors. Steamer isn't so high on him; um, projects him to be actually below replacement level, so a negative point two WAR uh, for 2016 with a 233 average, 264 OBP, and 347 slugging percentage. I'm sure the Royals, you know, they've really pushed him aggressively at every level so far, despite his young age. Um, but they're going to be looking at him, if not back in Northwest Arkansas, in to start 2016, at least at Omaha. He's not quite Major League ready, and they don't need him to be Major League ready right away because they have LCD Escobar um, at short right now. The interesting thing in that Royal system, though, is... The most valuable prospect they had, according to steamer projections, was actually Kyle Zimmer um They had him for two point five war and as Royals fans know uh, Zimmer has faced you know numerous injury problems the last couple of years, pretty much pitched exclusively out of the bullpen last year um coming back from some injuries, namely a lat um some back injuries and uh they, but he's been so productive at every level so far, even when he was pitching out of the bullpen last year that steamer believes he could handle a major league workload right now um one thing i always note in these stories is that for pitcher starting pitchers it projects them at 200 innings pitched zimmer the royals aren't going to let him get close to that next year um but if he's healthy steamer thinks he is major league ready and that would be a big boom for that's interesting looking, yeah looking to repeat in 2016
1: so, you can find the American League Central prospect projections up now on the site at MILB.com. National League Central coming up on Monday. Uh, you're halfway through. Halfway through. The federal government didn't step in and throw a grand jury at you. You'd be, uh, you know, a lot more uh, – because that hasn't been – you've had to just ride them over the weekend and do – just taking all kinds of time from you.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm doing uh, – I'm working on NL Central after tonight. I should say it's not the federal government's fault. It's the uh, County of Kings, which is oh. funny. to say. The county of kings uh brooklyn new york uh i'm serving it here so it's it's uh yeah i feel the like king's my time is call.
1: coming because uh you're on a grand jury this week my best friend was on a jury last week and so i'm sure i'm just gonna get um you know soon these, soon these and things work
2: in work in threes right unbelievable That's,
1: exactly unbelievable uh strike three this week <laughs> it's a nice diversion strike three this week uh story i wrote Same yeah thing.
2: Yeah, so I have a couple questions about yes. that. I probably should have been the one to transition this. But That's anyway, here we are. Um, yeah, so you wrote a story this week on somebody with a great name, uh, Boomer Collins. Yes. As somebody who, whose middle name is Collins. Uh, and he, is it really? About it. Yeah.
1: Samuel Collins Dykstra. There you go. Now we know. Um,
2: okay. And you talked to him about a, he's a guy who's trying to make the transition from professional baseball, used to be in the Blue Jays system, to cricket. So going from a round bat to a flat bat, what did he have to say about that transition? What go, kind of goes into that? And I know you talked to a coach who's trying to help him with that. What What is all about that or- – what is that transition all about
1: this is a pretty crazy story uh boomer collins was a non-drafted free agent he was signed by the blue jays out of dallas baptist university played three years in the minors but just kind of as his coach julian fountain put it um could sort of see the writing on the wall he was an older guy wasn't necessarily getting all the opportunities and he could see that it probably wasn't going to last long for him in professional baseball so about a year ago he got in contact uh, with Boomer, Julian Fountain did, and uh, just kind of put the bug in his ear that this is a project that Julian is undertaking. And the project is switchhit20.com. Julian Fountain is a former um, Great Britain national team baseball player. He's also got a very lengthy resume both playing and coaching the sport of cricket and has sort of always had at the back of his mind, you know what, I bet a minor league baseball player, once his playing days are done, could probably make the transition pretty successfully to be a cricketer. Um, And the sport of cricket has evolved really over the last decade, decade and a half, um, to be a lot more of a a clearer route between baseball and cricket. There's now a new form of cricket called Twenty Twenty cricket, which is not what you're thinking of when you think of cricket. When you think of cricket, you think the guys in the white pants and hats and they stand around, it's five days long and you can tie. That's not T20 cricket. T20 goes about three hours It's basically what you could equate to... A pitch count for a baseball game—you only get 120 uh, overs per game, so you only get a set amount of balls bowled at you per game. So it's all about making as good a contact as possible, hitting balls out of the yard. It transitions the skills from baseball to cricket um, pretty easily. So Boomer Collins caught wind of this about a year ago, while he was still in the Blue Jay system, and started really letting it germinate in his mind. He'd watch videos on YouTube, he'd watch matches on TV when he could catch them. He'd continually pester Julian. Fountain with questions and ask him about, you know, when when this play, this guy did this, why did he do that? What is this rule here? All that kind of stuff. And in November, he called Julian Fountain, said, you know, I get the feeling that this is probably the end of the road for me, and I really want to try this cricket thing. Um, shortly thereafter, he was let go by the Blue Jays, and they dove into this full bore. So uh, Boomer is not an old guy at all. I mean, came out of college, and uh, I think is, at this point, you know... Had the ability to maybe have some staying power in a different organization if he wanted to. 26 years old, he was a Class A advance last year. Maybe he can latch on with somebody else. But just decided, no, I'm going to give this a shot. So he has now decided to make it a full-time thing. He's training uh, at his home in Texas. Went over to India for a little while. Did some work over there while Julian was over there uh, doing some coaching stuff. So this is a crazy story. But... They're kind of up the mindset right now that if somebody takes a chance on him, if he can sign a professional contract somewhere, it's really going to blow up. It'll be a big marketing opportunity for the team, the league, and for Boomer to try to get a foothold into the American television market and all that kind of stuff. It's a very layered, very interesting story.
2: Yeah, so do they have a specific strategy in terms of like how to catch it on in America, or are they just hoping he's the first guy to do this and others follow? I mean, what's, what's the kind of hope? Um, from Fountain in this in this whole thing of developing this this guy,
1: really both of those. And what I find kind of interesting is this the website switchhit20 dot com sort of started from the the impression that i gather as kind of almost a million dollar arm in reverse uh people remember dinesh patel and riku singh the two indian uh they were cricket players but they were also uh i know riku singh was a javelin thrower i believe um they were kind of more in athletics than they were just in cricket uh but two indian kids who were um in a competition to try to throw a strike at over 90 miles an hour uh that was the basis for a reality show in india they were each signed uh, to professional deals by the Pittsburgh Pirates as an extension of that. And uh, it was, of course, made into a movie with John Hamm, et cetera, et cetera. This seems like it's kind of that in reverse, but not for the sake of a just a promotion. Julian Fountain very much believes that this has the ability to not only catch on for minor leaguers who have seen their careers come to a close, but that it could get the sport of T20 cricket a foothold in the U.S. Because, as he put it, the sport is something that Americans will really recognize and enjoy. Every other, every other bold ball, it's not a pitch, every other bold cricket ball, there's something else happening. Um, it's not a, a circumstance where guys are standing around. It's a pitcher's working through a 45-pitch inning and there's a bunch of walks and whatever. It's not one of those sorts of sports. From his vantage point, it's kind of a more condensed, more exciting version of what he sees baseball to be. And he's a baseball fan, but he sees it as something that the American public would really like. And especially more so if Americans are playing it. So that's kind of the first door to break down. The second door is getting more guys involved. And Julian said that since Boomer has been in contact with him, other players have started to take notice of that. Boomer will post stuff on Twitter. Uh, they do, you know, kind of various updates video-wise showing the transitions and the, the continued progress of his skill. And he said he's hearing now from two or three players a week, um, guys who are a little bit more interested in it. And the thing that I thought was really neat was that Julian made sure to say he's not trying to poach – baseball players from baseball. He's trying to take guys who've reached the end of the line in baseball and don't want to give up playing a sport at a professional competitive level and give them the opportunity to do something else. So that's what really excited Boomer was. I don't have to give up playing a sport and getting paid to do it. And not only that, if you latch on in the right situation, especially if he's able to be successful somewhere like the Caribbean, he's in a league uh, draft for the Caribbean premier league, which will be next month. You can latch on there and, and make a name for yourself then potentially you get signed by one of the bigger leagues overseas. You go to India, you go to Pakistan, you go wherever. That's big money. I mean, that's pretty legitimate major league money that you could be making. So it's, uh, this is kind of the he's patient zero for this. And um, the way that it plays out with him, I think, will really dictate if it has a future and if other guys start seeing that as a viable avenue for themselves, maybe once their playing days are done.
2: Do you get any sense that he feels any pressure if he's, as you said, the agent zero for this whole experiment?
1: You know, I don't, and I think it's because he's sort of taking it on as a flyer. I think, you know, rather than, all right, I got released from a baseball team, got to go get a real job now, Um, I think more than that, it's, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to do something else. And you're sort of playing with house money when you're you're trying something that comes so far out of the blue, like playing professional cricket. I don't think he really sees it as a pressure thing. I think he sees it as an opportunity that came along where nobody else has seen this avenue open up. So um, that's what I get from, from Boomer. Now, I did read an interview with Julian um, with a different publication recently in which he said – Right now, he's basically funding the whole thing. So he's hoping that at some point uh, there's a deal done, there's an endorsement deal, there's a contract to go play, so then he can start reinvesting some of the money that he'll get from that um, into making this uh, a bigger industry for more guys who want to try it out. So there certainly is that aspect to it as well. But I really get the sense that Boomer is just in this to make it work and make some history as being the first former professional baseball player to make that transition to T20. Nice.
2: Well, we'll cool. all be, yeah, we'll all be paying attention just to see if uh, a new pipeline opens up from uh, Texas to India. To India. <laughs> and
1: uh, his tweet, by the way, was one of the best. He tweeted, Boomer Collins tweeted the other day, retweeted our tweet from com, and said, I tried for three years to make the front page of this website. I stopped playing baseball and there you go. So <laughs>
2: <that>
1: was, <laughs> having some good perspective on the way things are. Um, so you can yeah. check that story out as well.
2: Yeah. So, if you so choose. And I, I highly recommend it as somebody who uh, had a lot of time to read this week. Um, <laughs> that was one of the things I read, so...
1: So that's up on MILB.com. Prospect projections up on MILB.com. Uh, Robert Emmerich, by the way, did have a, a Q&A with Michael Fulmer. You can check that out on the site as well. Um, some news from Benjamin Hill. The, uh, the Fireflies, the, the newest team in the South Atlantic League, the Columbia Fireflies, unveiled their uniforms. We so got an update on that, all kinds of stuff. One uh, news item of note to get to, there was a trade that went down today. Not a huge prospect trade, uh, but the Colorado Rockies and the Tampa Bay Rays making a deal. Uh, The Rockies have announced just a few moments ago, actually, they have sent... uh Third base prospect, Kevin Padlow, to the Tampa Bay Rays in that trade. Uh, Coming the other way is the right-hander, German Marquez, who is the number 25 prospect in the Rays system. So he's the ranked one of the two as that deal has gone final. Uh, The major league prospect, or the major league pieces in that trade, Jake McGee goes to the Rockies from Tampa Bay. Corey Dickerson goes to Tampa Bay from Colorado. So that's uh, kind of the only news item. We're sort of in one of those lulls. Where we're down on the major league roster invitations, non-roster invitations for spring training. Um, like we're we're in the calm before the storm now because we're two and a half weeks away.
2: Yeah, this is when uh, we start to you know try to feel out what what is the season going to be like, and this is why you know uh, prospect lists and prospect projections and all that kind of stuff kind of come out now. Um, just to kind of fill that void. Um, but once, once we get there to spring training, that's when it'll ramp up real fast again. So
1: close. So close. And I can't wait. Um, So mentioned the Columbia Fireflies there a minute ago. Uh, New logo, new uniforms. Our guest for episode number 43 of the show before the show podcast. I could not have been more excited to talk to. Uh, So prepare yourself for like 20 minutes of me just being a nerd in every (laughs) conceivable way. But Todd Radom, who uh, (laughs) Sam and Ben and I once got in a uh, four way conversation with Todd Radom on Twitter on the proper pronunciation of his last name. But Todd Radom, you can follow on Twitter at Todd, R-A-D-O-M. This year uh, was the guy who helped with the the refreshed logo of the South Atlantic League and the Appalachian League. You've seen his logos and his work with the World Baseball Classic, the logo of the Durham Athletic Park, uh, the former home of the Durham Bulls. The Brooklyn Cyclones identity is a Todd Radom project. Todd Radom joins the show to talk logos and uniforms and design and a whole lot more next. I'm just nerding out and personally thrilled and excited about this week's guest for the show before the show podcast from milb.com. Graphic designer extraordinaire Todd Radom joins the show. Todd, I could not. I've stalked you on Twitter for years. I've read all your stuff. That's anything that's been on UniWatch. I've read your blog for years. I've basically this is my way of telling you that I am kind of a creepy stalker, and I and I uh, I love your work. How are you? <laughs>
0: Good, Tyler, thank you so much. I am flattered and it's yet another affirmation of the of the fact that people love their logos and uniforms. It unites us, regardless of what teams we root for and what sport we might be interested
1: in. So, thank you very much. I appreciate your kind words. It absolutely does that, and uh, we should start by saying uh, you just told me a few minutes ago you, during the season, do the baseball tonight podcast with Buster only. So uh, we, you know, like talk about trying to measure up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make <laughs> every effort to be at least somewhat comparable in a podcasting experience to that for you. So, we'll
0: see uh, it's how it goes. content. It's all about content. <laughs> so I am, I am. Uh, uh, uh-huh. I'm honored to be
1: here. Well, here's what brings us on uh, with you. And we talked about this actually a couple months ago. Uh, me and my co host Sam, who is off on grand jury duty today in New York City, uh, we wow. talked about talking to you because this offseason, you have come out with two new league identities for the Southern League and the Appalachian League. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit uh, because leagues are not something that you see. A minor league team rebrands like every six minutes. It's like one of those stats. Uh, but for leagues, that's not something. <laughs> we often see, so we're going to dive into that here momentarily. But first, for people who don't know, you who haven't followed you on Twitter, which they absolutely should do. At Todd Radom, T O D D R A D O M. Um, just kind of give us your background: how you got into graphic design, how you got into logos specifically, and especially in the sports world.
0: Yeah, well, I, it's a long story, so I'll compress it for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> but uh, you know, by and large, I come from a family of artists. I'm a fourth generation working artist in way, one way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, went to art school and majored in graphic design and just think at the same time, I've always been a guy who has loved sports, particularly baseball. And ever since I was a little kid, I've always been fascinated by the, you know, the kind of the visual culture and iconography of, of sports and baseball in particular. I'm that kid who was doodling logos while keeping score in a scorebook at a Yankees game when I was you know, 10 or 11 years old, and so uh, there's a certain amount of destiny involved in all of this. Um, Fast forwarding, uh, I've worked with my friends at Major League Baseball, uh, you know, as an independent designer on the outside being brought in for certain projects since 1992. Wow. So that's a long time, and it's really spanned, um, you know, quite an era in terms of how we do the work. It's all digital, obviously, now, but way back when, it was all hand-drawn, and you know, manipulated by cameras and stuff like that. Um, additionally, I've uh, you know, I've, I've worked with the NBA for many years. I did the Super Bowl logo back in 2004. And, you know, it brings us full circle here to our discussion because I've had the pleasure of working with uh, my friends in the uh, licensing department at Meyer League Baseball down in St. Pete for a number of years now. And uh, always enjoy working with them. And, and, uh, you know, we we talk about the league logos, and that's really where the initiative started.
1: What makes a great logo to me, and again, like I'm just going to nerd out so thoroughly being uh, able to have a chance to talk to you. But what makes (laughs) a a great logo for me are the logos that inspire the memory of, like when I look at your logo uh, from Super Bowl 38, I immediately know... Uh, there's Adam Vinatieri's game-winning kick, it was Pat's Panthers, it was in Houston, I know where I was when I was watching it, I was in my college dorm room, like, I, that, to me, makes a brilliant logo, and to be able to create that, um, something that you can, you can put on a merchandise, so you can put on a uniform or whatever, and it, Connects with people. Um, is that kind of the thing that that still drives you most? I mean, it's uh, to have a love of the sport and to have a love of you know the the design and all that kind of stuff has got to be a huge part of it. But the fact that you have a piece of your work that is known internationally and not just one but dozens. Um, I mean, how cool is that for you?
0: It's awesome, and it's a driving force because uh, on my end of the business. Uh, quite often we're faced with multiple revisions. It can really be the equivalent of running a marathon, of navigating this process, and, you know, a certain amount of failure baked into it because you're doing things over and over again and have to build consensus. But to your point, you know, that moment in time that you talk about with regard to the Super Bowl 38 logo, whatever its merits, you know, it's connected to memories. And this brings us back to the fact that you know, and I always say this, it's kind of like a pat line that I use, but I really believe it to be true. Sports fans are the most brand, ardent brand loyalists on earth. You or I might like a certain service. You might like shopping at a certain supermarket. You might love Starbucks, but sports fans tattoo their logos on their bodies, and that is the ultimate passion play in terms of how they connect with you know, their, their, their teams, their leagues, their sports, whatever it might be. The challenge of knowing that these people care as much as they do and the fact that in so many instances their communities are so tied into the identity of their teams and it's such a a piece of the culture, it's a great, great challenge. And tapping into all that is something that I really am very conscious of and I try to uh, address head on every day.
1: Todd, what is the, the era that you would say, or what are the, the things, the different design aspects of, of things in the past? The, I mean, if you look at your body of work, especially some of the stuff that's up on toddradom.com, you can see there's a common thread through a lot of it, and it's a, a, a style of design and logos that I know I'm very drawn to um, that has kind of that old feel to it. Um, there's uh, especially one of the things I've really loved, the retro ballpark posters that you've done uh, for, like for Wrigley oh, Field in you. Los Angeles. Love that stuff what what are some of your biggest inspirations um whether it's in sports i mean some of your favorite logos uh from growing up or or whatever that is or just some of your inspirations on what created your identity as a designer
0: that's a great question and and thank you you (laughs) no it really is and and you know i would like to think of uh you know inspiration for any creative person hopefully comes from a variety of sources i think in my case it does I think any of us are inspired by the era that we grew up in. I'm personally a product of the 70s, and even though my work doesn't necessarily scream uh, rainbow Astros uniforms or powder (laughs) blue or anything like that, right? Uh, I, I do think there's a timelessness involved in the aesthetics of baseball, regardless of what team you're talking about. That uh, it all harkens back to this sort of, you know, uh, late 1800s place, you know, the ballplayers are still wearing uh, stirrups, although we don't see as much of them anymore. There are certain pieces to this that come from there. But, you know, in terms of specifics, I love architecture. I love signage on buildings. I'm fascinated by stuff from, you know, really old-time stuff, and you'll see some of this on my website that's really ornate and intricate and 1890s-looking, but I love kind of googie, you know, as they call it, 50s vernacular architecture, too. Yeah, definitely. So so I guess that, you know, the the short answer is, you know, it's a variety of different influences. Um, Every job is different, and, you know, if you, you, I think, as a creative person sort of get stuck in – you know, one particular little box or compartment, you know, you you can be pigeonholed and your work is going to suffer an atrophy. So, uh, hopefully it's a, it's an expansive curated uh, series of influences.
1: No, and that is certainly, I mean, that was one thing I was going to note, is you can see, and we have even companies that have done work in MILB that people have talked about, you can kind of tell, you look at a certain logo or a certain identity, and you think, okay, that belongs to this company or this firm, whatever it is. And that's what I've always loved about your stuff, is it doesn't have that same look throughout everything. And, uh, I mean, your work with minor league baseball is very, very well-versed um, and very diverse, I guess, over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years or so, especially the Brooklyn Cyclones identity. You came up with um, some of the the old minor league baseball properties, uh, the minor league baseball hometown collection, which is something that's really cool. It kind of digitizes and creates um, digital versions of old minor league baseball logos and identities for cities and that kind of stuff. What was some of the first MILB work that you did and how did you get involved with that?
0: Well, that's interesting. You know, you mentioned the Brooklyn Cyclones, and that's a project near and dear to my heart. I am often asked, and I, I did a hot stove event uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was asked, uh, what's your favorite logo? And it's kind of like asking, you know, what's your favorite child kind of a yes. deal. Yes, which I was going to ask, and I thought that exact same
1: thing. Like, how can you ask somebody just that question, what is your favorite logo of somebody who lives in logos?
0: Oh, I get it all the time, and it's the gun-to-your-head <laughs> conversation. And Absolutely. quite frequently, you know, if you're really asking me, I come back to that Brooklyn Cyclones logo that you referenced. Because I think several things. Number one, I'm a native New Yorker. You know, working on that project, you know, there was a lot of meat on the bone, if you know what I mean. Um, Definitely. You know, the mandate was to, you know, here is the first ball, uh, baseball, professional baseball that's going to be played in Brooklyn since the Dodgers departed in the late 50s. It's about Coney Island, which is no a very colorful place. And, you know, honestly, it was about coming up with a, a minor league team with sort of a major league identity. And lastly, I think it's aged pretty well, even though it's uh, – you know going on 15 years now uh 2001 um you know it still looks fresh and I I like it and you don't necessarily say that with every single project that you work on um but real quick also you know the the uh, licensing initiative that you that you just talked about the hometown collection that's a great opportunity to kind of like lovingly look back at at heritage some of these logos are wonderfully goofy uh, you know some of them would never fly today But to be able to share those with a contemporary audience to kind of get the details right on those things, um, research is such a huge thing. I love doing the research into it Um, and maybe stepping them up in certain instances and appending them for – you know, current usage—it's—it's really—it's always fun. I love doing that stuff.
1: Todd, that leads perfectly into um, this conversation about league identities. We'll talk a little bit more about some of your general work and stuff, but uh, the Southern League and the Appy League—two um, very historic baseball leagues—both of them come out with new logos this off season, um, and it is a thing that we don't see very often. As I kind of said earlier, there's a, a team rebranding is a very regular occurrence of minor league baseball. We have multiple ones of those every off season, but leagues that doesn't really uh pop up so often. So the research I would imagine is a lot different in doing that to to come up with a new identity and a new look for a league versus a team. For a team you can kind of get an idea what do you want the name, what do you want the logos to feel like that kind of thing. How did you approach this for the Southern League and the Apple League?
0: Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a threading of a needle if you want to call it that. Um so a couple of things to talk about. Number 1, yeah, you are totally right. Uh, you know, teams are, are, you know, tied to an individual city or region, whereas leagues uh, can represent quite a diverse, especially in these two cases, you know, diverse places in terms of geography, in terms of what they look like. And, you know, the, what what is the end usage? Well, if a logo of any kind is sort of a, a you know, the the primary asset of corporate communication, you know, team logos and team identities are uh, licensed out there. They're used on all kinds of merchandise. League logos are really a different animal. Um, you know, in the old days, you might say that, well, it's on a letterhead or somebody's business card. Um, and there should be sort of a timeless aspect to this because there's no reason to redo it, um, you know, in five years. There's no hot market to sell into So uh, in both of these cases, uh, there was great leadership on the part of uh, each of the leagues in terms of their executives, and certainly coordinating with the folks at Minor League Baseball in St. Pete that I talked about earlier, it was really all about sort of getting it right, uh, building something that was not just about the present, but was built to last for another 20 years, something like that, hopefully, and that represented all of the member clubs without pointing toward any specific member club and almost, oddly enough, anticipating, again, two decades out. Who knows who, who's going to be in there in terms of affiliations or location? So uh, it's kind of like you know, coming up with some infrastructure that, that's, going to, uh, that's going to take future technology well.
1: The thing that I love about both of these logos, and I think it can be said for for your work in general, I mean, like you said with the Cyclones logo, is they don't feel like they're tied to a certain time period. It's not like, you know, every team that came into existence in the 90s had some form of teal or purple in their uniforms. There's not like a trend with that stuff. These feel like uh, just identities that will last for a long time, which is the goal. Is that the hardest thing is figuring out something that you're not going to look back on in 5, 10, 15? years and think like uh, that, that font style is is so dated now or whatever that is. Is that the biggest challenge with creating something that you know is going to be a long-term project?
0: You know, it's always in the back of my mind and I will say that because of the fact that I've been doing this for as long as I have been doing it. Listen, I was there in the 90s and a lot of that was really born out of something I alluded to earlier which was this you know spasm of digital uh, possibilities. We were all of a sudden able to create multiple outlines and gradients and we sold into trends that were, uh, you know, that, there was a lot of that. And, you know, honestly, I don't have a lot of that. I, I sort of get, I've always gotten called to impart a sort of sense of timelessness, hopefully, uh, into what I do. And, and uh, you know, it hasn't always necessarily been the best business move because you miss those hot markets and certainly a case of sports teams you miss teams that really want to jump onto something and exploit it but uh, but it served me well and you're totally right I think in a case like that that mentality for each of these two leagues really you know' is sort of a, a comfortable fit and and again I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna build you a custom car and this thing is going to be able to uh, drive on the highway it's going to be able to use ethanol going forward magnetic you know, technology underneath the road, building something for the future, not knowing what the future is going to be, you got to make certain decisions that are sort of uh, rooted in structure, if you will.
1: We're talking with Todd Radem, a graphic designer who has done all kinds of work throughout Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, uh, and some of the most timeless logos that you've probably come across. Um, If you take the time to look at them, Todd probably uh, was very likely to have had a hand in them. Um, Todd, one of my favorite logo sets of any event, of any team, of anything ever, is the World Baseball Classic, um, which is going to be coming up uh, just a few weeks from now. The first qualifiers will be played in Sydney, um, which is exciting for all of us who nerd out in the W. BBC every four years Um, for that project, which is something that, you know, I mean, we're going to have a lot of minor leaguers who are in that coming up, especially these qualifiers over the next couple of months and on into the fall. One of them will be played in Brooklyn coming up in September. Um, That's really cool as an identity because the, the, the way that it almost feels like old-time travel artwork, especially the, the destination logos uh, for the the certain ballparks where things are played, or I know I have my tickets from 2006 still from the... Yeah, uh, or, and, and to, Good, we can put a collage together. Uh, <laughs> but they're awesome, I mean, it, it, it makes you feel like you're going to, uh, I mean, almost like a, an idyllic amusement park, that kind of thing. Um, for something like that, when you take into account this is what the feel of a specific event needs to be like. I mean, almost similarly to a league, it's so different from what you do from a team, from a merchandising standpoint, that kind of thing. I mean, knowing that we've got the WBC coming up in a few weeks, what was that project like to tackle? Well, it's really, it's kind of a
0: couple of different things. Number one, you know, we all, as baseball fanatics, we all have to embrace the fact and love the fact that our game is growing internationally, and it's, you know, it's being played in places that, Maybe we had no idea that it was being played, you know, uh, years ago. I mean, you talk about the qualifiers coming up and there are some countries in there and you say to yourself, I had no idea they played baseball there. Right. So just first and foremost, it's it, it was it's, it's a really cool thing to have been involved with from the very outset. The identity of the World Baseball Classic really needed to have an international appeal and if... You know, if you think about, you know, your close your eyes and think about your classic baseball identities, whatever that might be, World Series logos of the past or some timeless teams like the Yankees or you know, the Red Sox or the Tigers or the Cubs, throw that all out the window because this is something new and, you know, sort of inspired by maybe things like World Cups and, and Olympics. In terms of uh, branding events, events are really a a very interesting and different animal altogether because uh, quite frequently, uh, you know, all-star games or the case of a Super Bowl that you referenced earlier, um, we talked about moment in time. Well, that moment in time involves a place. And uh, in the case of, you know, of of event marks, they are deployed, uh, you know, this ancillary art that goes beyond just a logo, right? There's a whole suite of visual assets that will wind up, uh, you know, in hotels and airports and, yes, attached to merchandise and stadiums. But, um, you know, think about All-Star Games and how these communities really embrace this very singular moment in time that might not come back for a whole generation. Um, part of the challenge is to really, like, come up with some artwork that the community and the fan, the local fan base is going to embrace. And that's a really, really fun kind of project.
1: Todd, when you look at the way that um, design is going, especially in the world of minor league baseball, uh, everybody talks so often about, you know, oh, the team names are so wacky and the uniforms are getting so outlandish and yada, yada. Uh, I mean, we've seen that now across sports. Maybe it's the Oregon effect, whatever it is. But at this stage, do you as a designer look at this as the weirdest era for, for teams, for logos, for sports, for minor league baseball especially? I mean, we've got teams named after goats and after flying squirrels. <laughs> (laughs) after whatever or is it kind of the greatest era because you guys get that creativity and you get that leash to go out and say no let's do something fun let's do something that'll be classic but feels modern i mean how does this uh i guess you're kind of uh one of the big the heavy hitters in an era that has gone so widespread um how do you think people will look back on this in 20 years will it be more uh, of an expanded version of where we are now or how do you see that playing out
0: well you pointed out something really interesting and that is the Oregon effect and certainly when the University of Oregon essentially said several years ago we are going to have a different helmet and different uniform for our football team for every single game. You know, the thought was like you know, quote, identity. You know, you're losing your identity because it's getting diluted. Here's what I think. I think that what's great about Minor League Baseball, one of the great and I'm a consumer. I go to games all the time. I'm you know, I I hope to get to a yard goats game this year. As a matter of fact, once they finally get moved in up there, but minor um, league baseball sells itself, rightfully so, as an accessible form of inexpensive family entertainment. That's a completely different experience from going to an NFL game, you know, taking a family of four, or whatever that median might be, to you know, to an NBA game or even a major league baseball game. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, you know, different segments can all have different vibes right and personality um i recently actually talk about wackiness of uniforms uh i i spoke uh, i ran into a a current major league player uh of you know sort of short tenure but a guy who was in the minors fairly recently and and i say to him i said to him what i say to a lot of anytime i encounter a professional ball player I'm like first of all you know, what does the uniform mean to you and, and all this kind of stuff? And then to him I said, how about the league uniforms? Is there a certain amount of dignity that's lost by having to wear what you, what you wear? Different guys are going to have different answers. In his case, he pulled out his cell phone, and he showed me a picture of him taken in the clubhouse in just a ludicrous <laughs> uniform. <laughs> but but you know what? Any kid who goes to that game, and most fans are going to remember that uniform sort of in the same way that somebody who comes to Yankee Stadium for the first time, say they're on vacation in New York, they want to see the Yankees in the pinstripes. It's similar but different, and there's a place at the table for all of us.
1: That's a great way to put it. I mean, especially for a lot of those uniforms that are one-time things in the minors to raise awareness for something. If you go to a game and a team's wearing an insane-looking uniform and then you realize, oh, it's for an awareness for a specific cause or a specific charity or a specific condition, people might say that looks ridiculous, but you noticed it, so it's doing its job. And that's what I think is, is really, in large part, uh, one of the big points of those things as well. And so that's really interesting. That's really cool to hear that. And um, Todd, this has been so much fun. Uh, you can check out Todd's work, ToddRadom.com. He's done stuff, the, the Washington Nationals logo, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim logo, the last season at Yankee Stadium 2008 first season at the new yankee stadium in 2009 those logos were his all-star games winter meetings durham athletic parks logo the old-time home of the durham bulls that you saw in bull durham uh the billion times that you've watched it if you're like me uh todd <laughs> this has been such a thrill i have to before we let you go i have to ask you this because i know you tweeted about it last night and being a, a denver native uh and sitting you know in a city right now that's going insane the broncos are going all white for the super bowl your thoughts They're the home team. Yeah, that
0: is so weird. And, you know, superstition comes into play here. I mean, clearly. And the fact that John Elway is attached to that franchise still in a role that, you know, I mean, he was as a player and here he is as, you know, an executive. And, you know, probably at the forefront of making that call. I don't know. I'm kind of like missing something with no dog in the fight. I close my eyes, and I love the fact that the Broncos are an orange team again. I know they have been for a couple of years. It just never seemed right in navy blue. So I'm going to miss seeing that kind of color. And, uh, you know, you you talk about history. Maybe they had a chance to make history overcoming the Orange Crush curse. We'll never know.
1: We'll never know. I think they're 0-4 uh, in Super Bowls in Orange with an average margin of defeat of like 37. Uh, so they're going to try to avoid that. But, yeah, I'm the same way. And the NFL football so rarely gives into superstition. It was so weird to see that last night. That blew my mind.
0: Well, was... and, you know, real quick, yeah, the thing that I tweeted out last night was the fact that uh, the the Pittsburgh Steelers did likewise 10 years ago. Yes. And, again, close your eyes and think of those Steelers of, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the 70s, the classic Steelers they're they're clad in black yeah. it's part of their identity white is just it's a little i don't know i'm kind of missing some something that you know the fan base really probably wants to embrace
1: todd this has been so much fun if uh if i mean i would keep you on for like a three-hour podcast well tyler on. we got to do it
0: again i think that's what it is <laughs> Absolutely, let's, let's let's the weather warm up let's talk uniforms I love the fact that you're as intuitive as I am, and we know that there are so many people out there who feel the same
1: way. That is—that sounds like a perfect plan. Once this, uh, we've got the sun out here today. I know wherever everybody else is, they're probably cursing me for saying that ever the last weekend. But uh, we will absolutely do this again, Todd. This has been so great, and uh, and thanks for the time. We'll do it again soon. Thank you so much. It was great. Uh, I'm like so giddy getting a chance to listen to the Todd Raymond interview. <laughs> I just like, oh man, I've stalked him for so long on Twitter and on UniWatch and on his blog. Um, you can follow him, by the way, on Twitter. He's at Todd Radom, R-A-D-O-M. And a uh, huge thanks to Todd for joining the show. And as he said, love to do it again. I'm sure he'll be coming out with some new stuff here uh, over the coming months and years that we will be more than delighted to talk about. So uh, go follow Todd on Twitter. And um, that'll do it. Sam Dykstra, tomorrow, done with grand jury duty. Very exciting. By the time knock you're listening wood. to this, knock on wood, Sam could be back in the world with the rest of us normies.
2: Yeah, I'll be back with my uh, real microphone next week. So apologies for any sound audio quality issues. Um, but yeah, no, I'm excited to be back in the office next week and um, won't be able to share any stories. So sorry for anybody who's disappointed on that. These things are sealed, but I'll be ha- happy to be in the real world outside of a courtroom.
1: Also, no food allowance, which blows my mind. I thought they give yeah. you like six bucks a day or something.
2: No, no. It's it's in downtown Brooklyn, so there's plenty of options, including this killer buffalo chicken place down the street that I've been avoiding with all my power, so maybe I'll break down and go there tomorrow. But uh, no, all, all our own money blows my mind
1: blows my mind government in action yeah. um so that is it for us sam is on twitter he's at sam dykes or milb the podcast you can find at milb.com slash podcast now you can go there and find your itunes subscription uh link your rss link you can share us on facebook and twitter and friendster and myspace and everywhere else um and go on and rate and review and subscribe to the show before the show podcast and uh that'll do it so until next week questions thoughts comments concerns podcasts at milb ilb.com top 100 we will be discussing again next week with the top prospects in baseball finally out there in the open getting a set for 2016 and uh we enjoyed this one we'll talk to you then